0: Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 33 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, and compliance. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. Today, we will review the cryptocurrency market. Our discussion will focus on technical operation of cryptocurrencies, blockchain technology, and related compliance issues. Uh, You know, this new technology is exploding in the marketplace. Coin, for example, raised $7 billion in cash last year. And this year, ICOs are expected to raise over $20 billion in capital. Bitcoin and other established cryptocurrencies have increased in value. Bitcoin, for example, reached a high of nearly $20,000 and is now trading just under $7,000. Ethereum, a rival cryptocurrency, is trading at just under $400. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are volatile and investors are suffering significant swings in profits and losses. At the same time, we are witnessing the beginning of a regulatory enforcement actions of the industry and enforcement actions against fraudsters, Ponzi schemes, and other misconduct surrounding this new and exciting market. Well, to help me review these issues today, I'm proud to welcome Matt Stankiewicz, an associate at the Volkoff Law Group. Thank you, Matt, for joining us today on this fascinating topic, and I know you've been spending a lot of time... Studying and working on in this area with clients and just got it.
1: Thank. Sorry, this is yeah for having me here. This is something that I'm uh, been pretty excited about, and uh, yeah, looking forward to talking today.
0: So, Matt, can you help us first with, you know, how you define cryptocurrencies? I, you know, I the term gets bandied about. And um, how do you define, you know, what is Bitcoin? And I know we don't have hours for this, but Ethereum and even Ripple.
1: Yeah, so it's a, it's a fairly misunderstood term. Um, I can start by providing just a basic dictionary definition to get it started. Um, so the dictionary defines it as a digital currency in which encryption techniques are used to regulate the generation of units of currency and verify the transfer of funds operating independently of a central bank. So there's a whole lot to really unpack from that definition. Um, we need to kind of get into some basics about the blockchain, about mining, and encryption. Uh, but before we do this, we just cryptocurrency, I'm not a big fan of the name because it tends to pigeonhole it into a very small use case. So it's important to know that these assets are not just currency. It's not just a digital cash, uh, but it can be so much more. So Bitcoin was really the first cryptocurrency and it's, you know, obviously the largest, and most well known now. It's a, it's a household name. Everyone's been talking about it. There's been a lot of buzz. Um, and yeah, at a basic level, Bitcoin was created to be a digital cash without a central authority. So instead of, instead of having a bank or any kind of third party in the middle, It utilizes deregulated blockchain to verify and record transactions. So this is what people think of when they think of cryptocurrency, but, you know, Bitcoin has really become almost archaic compared to a lot of the newer cryptos. Um, So as many have discovered and for a lot of companies are exploring now, the blockchain is really this amazingly powerful process. So a lot of newer coins are further all sorts of uses of this, this energy. So you may have heard Bitcoin referred to as, you know, a store of value. Um, and that's because the blockchain can record the movement of every single fraction of a Bitcoin. You can follow every place a coin has been and every transaction it's crossed. So now what if you're storing, you know, think of a different use case. Instead of storing value, you were storing record. So just as some, you know, just think of some basic applications in the legal world now. What about intellectual property? We still struggle to figure out who owns the rights to a song like Happy Birthday, you know, one of the most well-known songs in the world. So if trademarks and copyrights could be recorded on the blockchain, we could then easily track changes of ownership, licensing, royalties, and all those other little nuances in seconds. Same thing with real estate, title searches, it'd be so much easier and it'd be borderline instantaneous. So meanwhile, Ethereum, uh, Bitcoin's largest rival at this point has helped develop the concept of smart contracts. So instead of just operating as a store of value, these coins can now carry code language. Uh, I understand I use the term coin very loosely. There's no physical manifestation of cryptocurrency. Uh, so just kind of you know keep that in mind. It's, it's all completely digital. But anyway, the code language on these coins, it allows for the execution of applications during a transaction. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit more about this when we hit on mining, but, you know, just understand that that kind of goes hand in hand. And just to briefly touch on Ripple, since you, uh, you, since you asked about that one as well. Ripple is essentially a payment processor. So that technology has been built a large amount of money across institutions. Uh, so for example, helping banks transfer millions between each other, uh, across international lines and doing so within seconds and for nominal fees. Uh, so, for example, a lot of these, um, you know, money transfer companies such as Western Union, MoneyGram, uh, they're currently experimenting with the tech um, along with a lot of major banks. So, while many of these coins, uh, or while many people consider these coins to be competitors, many don't actually compete at all, and instead just fulfill various uses. So, you know, I still believe the surface has only just been scratched in this regard, and we're going to see a whole lot more innovation and. Um, evolution, you know, as as
0: time goes on. You know, uh, one uh, before before we get to the next question, I saw a presentation on blockchain and the use in supply chain, for example. IBM is really big into this right now, and I think uh, blockchain can be revolutionary. So many functions, even hepards, that you may have your health records that's kept on blockchain because it's secure and immutable that, you know, go with you wherever you go. You can access them and just provide them to anybody if you want. Um, So I think your point about the record keeping and the, the, I guess it's called distributed ledger technology is just the applications of it can be revolutionary in so many fields. That's why I think blockchain is Going to be an incredible economic driver as time goes on, uh, as P- you know, as the costs come down of it, and it becomes more secure and uh, you know even more acceptable in the uh, economy.
1: Right, I, I agree hundred percent. I mean, health records, like you mentioned, um, it would not be very hard at all to create a blockchain that was HIPAA compliant, and then just kind of having that carrying those records around on your phone, essentially. So you know, wherever
0: you you described just. Uh, and people, I think, are still trying to understand how does Bitcoin and how do these cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, operate?
1: So, yeah, to, to answer that question, uh, let's just kind of go back to that cryptocurrency name again. Uh, we kind of unpacked the currency definition. Now let's focus on the crypto prefix. So crypto refers to cryptography or the use of codes to exchange information. Uh, so most people may be familiar with the I think Enigma machines of World War II where countries were communicating with each other through these um, encrypted codes. So kind of applying that process to the blockchain, uh, here we have transaction data being run through this incredibly complex algorithm to secure and encrypt them. population. Um, and they're rewarded for their efforts through network fees and the creation of new coins. So the first one to arrive at the answer of that algorithm gets the lion's share of reward while millions of others on the network will verify that answer until a consensus is reached. So these guys are the miners. That's what you that's what people mean when they say mining miners and um, I know that term is kind of weird to apply digitally like this, but that's essentially what it refers to. So these transactions are grouped into these small digestible pieces, otherwise known as a block. So each block is mined one at a time. The result from each mine block is then incorporated into the next block, thus chaining them together, creating the blockchain. So attempting to manipulate a block early in the chain would then upset all subsequent blocks. So there's really no way for a hacker to slip in a fraudulent transaction into any earlier block. Verifying one single Bitcoin transaction requires enough electricity to run an average American household for nearly eight days. So at its peak, Bitcoin is processing around... I think it was 300,000 300, transactions per day. So, I mean, you can just kind of see the scale of energy that, you know, th- this blockchain is working with. Sounds like a downside, and, you know, to some extent it is, but this is also something that helps secure the Bitcoin blockchain because it just becomes economically infeasible to create a fraudulent transaction. That energy use, which just, you know, is just based on cologne, just doesn't be worth it. So, you know, as you can kind of see from this, like, this creates a tremendous amount of computing power. Now, going back to Ethereum for a second, by introducing smart contracts, they're essentially utilizing that computing power to create a peer-to-peer supercomputer. So, instead of just solving algorithms to secure transactions, this network is now facilitating data transfer and running protocols and applications.
0: So one of the, one of the, the, the amazing thing about all of this is that the technology is moving so rapidly. Um, and, you know, just as always, uh, the government and federal and state regulation is coming behind it. We've already seen Ponzi schemes using, uh, Bitcoin and other things like that. And you have fraudsters out there, uh, just like anywhere where, you know, money is, is, you know, flowing to, they're going to be fraudsters. That does not mean that the technology itself is fraudulent. It means that there are fraudulent actors who are using this technology. How do you see federal and state regulation uh, in this area sort of developing with cryptocurrencies?
1: Yeah, and they certainly are developing, um, and it's still somewhat of a gray area. Like you said, it's a moving target. Um, I mean, I think the best thing to do is just kind of de- start off by addressing some of the past concerns. Um, You know, there's no doubt cryptocurrency really got off on a bad foot. Um, you know, as you can imagine, there were some obvious use cases for currency that, you know, at the time could not be tracked, allowed both parties to be completely not, anonymous, and did not have any kind of central institution, whether a bank or a government, able to intervene. Uh So, yeah, you know, Bitcoin and the early cryptocurrencies were initially used on the dark web. That's, you know, a scary part of the Internet where people buy and sell a whole lot of illegal things like drugs, prostitution, weapons, and just, you know, a whole lot of, a whole lot of party supplies like that. Um, The, you know, the critics of cryptocurrency still, you know, it's still pretty easy it makes sense, to use cryptocurrency to evade laws and facilitate these illegal activities, whether money laundering, drug trafficking, or, you know, the dark web stuff, you know, so as, as a result, some nations have just come down hard and outright banned cryptocurrencies flat out. But, you know, that said, the industry has cleaned itself up a bit. Uh, At this point, dark web web transactions account for only about 1% of all Bitcoin transactions. You know, so while it's still not 0%, which is what you would ideally like to see, you know, it's still a very, very, very minimal amount of the overall transaction. So this is a very fluid area, still changing day by day. Um, You know, so some of the issues have been decided, but others are still being worked out. So, you know, we can kind of touch on some of the basics now. Uh, You know, at the federal level, um, cryptocurrency regulation includes a few things. So, one, uh, the SEC took a position that cryptocurrency can fall under the definition of are pretty big, pretty significant. You know, these initial coin offerings may require a registration filing. So, not all coin offerings would fall under this requirement, but the SEC Excuse The SEC's chairman has stated that he's yet to see a coin offering that does not constitute a security offering, which would thereby require an S-1 registration. So the CFTC has been involved here as well. They've taken a position that cryptocurrencies constitute commodities under the Commodities Exchange Act. So both the CFTC and SEC have exercised their authority to prosecute fraud and other statutory requirements. For example, the SEC has been pretty strong now on coming down hard on market manipulation and these other concepts, such as the, quote-unquote, pump-and-dump scheme. Um, these have been all over the crypto space, unfortunately. And, you know, to some extent, it's good to see these agencies come down hard on them and clean it up. So exchanges, the SEC has exercised their enforcement authority over that. Uh, or certain exchanges anyway, just kind of based on its authority over securities exchanges in general. Anti-money laundering regulation of cryptocurrencies will increase further. um the AML enforcement arm of the Treasury Department, has already declared that the Bank Secrecy Act, uh, those requirements apply to cryptocurrency transactions. And even at the state level, various states, most prominently New York and California, uh, New York especially being the financial mecca of the world, uh, they've exercised their – so this, re- this includes requiring exchanges and transactions – this includes having exchanges register and having the transactions conducted at money transmission businesses, and these all, you know, kind of requires different types of state licenses. So we're going to see continued evolution here. Um, I know this is going to be the hot topic in the coming months. Um, I think it will all be good. Uh, but, you know, at this point, it's still, still fairly unclear.
0: Well, where do you see, Matt? I mean, that's a, I mean, that's a lot of activity that's occurred relatively fast, but where, where do you see the next regulatory issues occurring? Um, and, you know, do you see it? I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of activity at the state level if there isn't already. Um, but where do you see things trending these days?
1: Yeah, there's going to be activity from from all avenues, you know, both the states and the federal level. Uh, and the they are they're continuing to push forward with this. Uh, you know, they're going to keep exercising their authority and bringing enforcement actions against bad actors. Uh, you know, that trend's not going to stop. And, you know, if, if you're going to be doing bad things, you can only expect the government to come down hard on you. So, you know, the CFTC specifically, you know, they're going to pursue regulations and enforcement actions in the futures market. You know, it's important to remember that the CFTC does not have regulatory authority over markets or platforms uh, conducting cash or spot transactions in cryptocurrencies, you know, but otherwise, wherever they have reached they're going to be sure to, uh, you know, to exercise it. So just to reiterate, the CFTC does have enforcement authority against fraud and manipulation in the cryptocurrency derivatives market and in the underlying virtual currency spot market. So they do have regulatory and enforcement jurisdiction over derivatives on cryptocurrencies in the United States. Now, keep in mind, the SEC and the CFTC has clear enforcement authority over cryptocurrency operations that qualify as policy schemes. Unfortunately, there are several of them, <laughs> you know, and people do need, to, do need to watch out. So, for example, the CFTC has brought civil enforcement actions against, you know, various perpetrators of fraud, market manipulation and disruptive trading involving cryptocurrencies. And you know, just as a few examples, there's been My Big Coin Inc. So the CFTC charged them with commodity fraud and misappropriation. And this is all related to their solicitation of currency known as My Bitcoin. These guys took customer funds and transferred them directly into their own personal accounts. Now that's always a bad idea. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Well that now, next- but that shows you but Matt, that shows you that you know, that has nothing to do with the cryptocurrency. It has everything to do with the fraudsters who basically weren't running a legitimate investment, and they basically were stealing people's money by using the language of, you know, coins and cryptocurrency. I mean, we've seen, you know, these types of schemes before where people siphon off, you know, investment money for themselves.
1: Right. And it's unfortunately big in this space because there is such a large buzz around it right now. Um, you know, early on, a lot of these coins had experienced tremendous growth, just unprecedented growth and made, made a lot of people rich. So now there's, now there's this fear of missing out that, you know, it's causing people to die, unfortunately, fall for some of these schemes. And, you know, to be quite honest, some of them do look really obvious when looking back, but it just, you know, people get swept up in that emotion early on. Yeah, so I think you're right. The regulatory movement. You know, I do also expect to see a lot of movement at the state levels. You know, we kind of touched briefly on California, New York already, but, you know, of all states, Wyoming recently passed several cryptocurrency-specific bills into law. So one of them defined cryptocurrency not as a security or as a commodity, but as this whole new asset class known as utility token. Now, the SEC has kind of played with that term before because that's what cryptocurrency companies have been trying to use to circumvent a lot of the securities registration. So the SEC has not really taken too kindly to it yet. So it's certainly possible that future regulations will be at odds with this Wyoming law. But, you know, personally, I think it's a very reasoned approach. Like I said, I don't like the currency name. I think it's more than that. And they do a lot of things more than just say money or, you know, store of value, um, Right. You know, so right. I think it's a step in the right direction, and they're trying, uh, you know, foster the the innovation as opposed to, you know, stymie it. So right. there's a, there's a whole lot of unknown at the moment. Um, I I do feel really positive about the future outlook. You know, all indications point towards a reasoned approach. Um, we've heard regu- regulators speak, and you know, they indicate that they want to continue to allow this industry to thrive. You know, regulation can certainly seem scary. Um, it's obviously more fun for some companies to operate without them, but um, it'll only help further legitimize the industry and wash away all these scams and content. It, you know, and I do think it will allow legitimate projects and companies to thrive.
0: Yeah, one of the when uh, and, and I want to get to the SEC, and I know Jay Clayton, the chairman of the SEC, has been very uh, vocal about this, and he he has been you know warning the public and he even put out i think a list of uh ask before investing in these uh you know offerings and um so he's been out there saying a lot um and uh, i think he's taking a reasoned approach you know he's not like the strongest regulator but he sees that a lot of the public have been harmed by this and you know, frankly, uh, the SEC getting involved in this, I think you're right. It separates the wheat from the chaff, sort of the fraudsters from the legitimate uh, business operators. So what, what have you seen in general, you know, in terms of uh, the SEC? Because they've been in the headlines in the last few weeks in terms of uh, enforcement actions in the industry.
1: Yeah, you know, kind of what I mentioned earlier, I think they are going to be taking a very reasoned approach. Um they're obviously issuing some warnings because they do wanna clamp down on a lot of the fraud and bad stuff that's been going on. You know, so there's no doubt they've taken the position that they're gonna intervene and prevent these illegal offerings or these that are not complying with securities law. You know, so even with these warnings, a lot of these companies have still been pushing forward regardless. Um but yeah, you know, it's no surprise that the SEC has now issued a long list of subpoenas. And so many of these ICO companies and all their promoters, you know, the focus on the SEC investigations now include um, one the CEOs and board members and senior executives from companies who have, especially from those who have been calling their coins utility tokens that they, you know, again they've been trying to use those to skirt regulation, but are actually ultimately offering securities. Uh two, the promoters who help market the offerings, and you know, they may be subject to regulation as broker dealers for these securities. Uh three, the advisors who are listed on the website and failed to register as advisors. Um next, the platforms that listed the ICOs and were compensated through undisclosed commissions. So, you know, again, we've kind of talked about the buzz and the rush here, and this is obviously some kind of new, you know, digital gold rush. And any of these companies looking to get involved here would be really well advised to start over with the advice and counsel of an attorney who you know can help navigate these complex security laws. You know, many of the ICO companies that fail to heed the SEC's warnings, they're going to end up offering investors a rescission to refund their money, and they may have only have thirty days to accept an offer and reinvest after the company cleans up its compliance picture. You know, and they're liable to. They're investors. They may sue the ICO company and you know those cases can be dragged on in court for forever. You know, we know how long the the court
0: I mean if I were when we advise clients, we would probably work with the SEC staff, you know, and tell them here's what we're thinking of doing. You know, you don't wanna sort of just run out there and do something and then get hit by the SEC. To me, right. you, you work with your regulators and make sure that what you're doing not going to be on their radar screen. Um, And, you know, like you mentioned, all the the classes of people they're going after, I think they're going to be really aggressive about broker-dealers who don't register if you're, you know, trying to assist in the sale. And I think, you know, you're just asking for it if you do that. And advisors, uh, these advisors who are helping, you know, companies to sell their products uh, in this market are going to get slammed unless they abide by the regulations, because those are the people they're really worried about. Um, and then if you had, a, you know, a serious issue, you go and talk to the staff in advance and, and work it through. That's what people are doing with the CFTC as well. There's a lot of consultations that go on. And I think that's right. probably the best thing the, the industry can do. I want I wanted to ask you to jump ahead, because one of the things that, um, the committee, I think it was, but, and there was some mention of you know, uh, conducting an ICO without triggering the SEC's registration requirements. And there's a lot of talk right now about a Regulation D offering. And then when I looked at it, my feeling was, well, this isn't really going to help that many people. Um, most people are going to end up having to do registration. But what exactly... Uh, from your from your standpoint, what exactly does the Regulation D offering, you know, exemption that's well established in the SEC rules, what does that allow people to do in terms of avoiding the uh, the registration requirements?
1: Yeah, so you know, Chairman Clayton kind of uh, alluded to that, um, how it's possible that an you know, wouldn't trigger registration requirements by going through this exemption. You know, so that exem, again, that exemption is the reg- regulation D offer. So Rules 504 and 506 uh, respectively exempt certain offerings from registration. So these include um, the sale of restricted securities up to a value of $5 million in 12 months and which cannot be sold for at least six months or a year without registering them and requires a filing of Form D. Uh, the sale of securities to an unlimited number of accredited investors and up to 35 other purchasers who meet investor sophistication requirements and receive disclosure documents, so long as the ICO company avoids general solicitation or advertising to market their uh, securities. And the sales securities, even with broad solicitation and advertising, provided that investors are all accredited investors and shares are restricted securities, meaning that they cannot be sold for at least six months or a year without registering them. So, companies that rely on Rule 506 must file a Form D with the SEC after they sell their security. So, that's kind of in a nutshell, um, Regulation D offerings. You know, other ICOs have attempted or are currently attempting to fit in as a Regulation A-plus offering, uh, but to date, no ICO hasn't approved as such. So, while some companies are trying it, it's probably not the best route to go, unfortunately. Eventually, some ICOs will register the new offering. Um, others will test, you know, various exemptions to registration. Again, new regulations will be coming down the pipeline. So there should be some help through those. And, and, you know, ultimately there's no doubt the ICO market is definitely going to grow. You know, as we mentioned earlier, I think expected to raise $20 billion this year. So, you know, it's a, it's a lot of money. And, you know, the only question is just how fast it's going to come and under what regulatory structure. Um, right. But right. Well, I just was going to add one more point to, um, you know, some of the you know players that need to be worried about regulations. Um, there was just a very recent charge against this coin called Centra, and the SEC cracked down on um, its promoters or um, its creators for various fraudulent stuff in their marketing. Uh, they were claiming that they were working with major credit card companies when that wasn't true, and, you know, a whole lot of issues there
0: we were talking about, and you mentioned uh, anti-money laundering risks uh, involving cryptocurrencies. And um, I do think that that's going to be, uh, you know, a continued area for enforcement in addition to fraud and regulations. Um, and I think we're going to see, what's, what's your sense of that in terms of treating these folks as money service businesses? And, you know, there's a lot of negative connotation with MSVs, you know, um, in terms of, you know, their stature in the market. Um, But what do you think is going to happen in this area with anti-money laundering risks?
1: Yeah, so Simpson has been active in this area for a little while now. Um, Actually, back in 2013, they released a paper, and in that paper, they stated that exchanges and administrators of cryptocurrencies are subject to the Bank Secrecy Act. Um, so, for that, they must register as a money services business. The purpose of that legislation was to prevent financial exchanges from being used to launder money or or finance crime and terrorism. So that didn't necessarily stop people from trying, unfortunately. Um, you know, in spite of that, the cryptocurrencies are sometimes used because the transaction works are required to comply with the, uh, the Bank Secrecy Act, or you know otherwise known as the BSA. And not every online exchange complies with that. So, back in September 2014, uh, this guy known as the BTC King pled guilty to operating an unlicensed exchange that exchanged over a million dollars in cash for Bitcoin, primarily used for criminal enterprise. Uh, you know, along what was known as the Silk Road. So, the culture of laundering money through cryptocurrency networks is a threat. Uh, it will probably continue to be so uh, for a little while. Um, it is continuing to, to decrease. Like we said before, only about one percent of all Bitcoin transactions are used for the dark web. Um, believe it or not, Bitcoin specifically does not really offer as high level of anon um, anonymity as you would think. A law enforcement agencies believe Bitcoin transactions. Um, it, yeah, it, if you're going to try and buy. Illegal stuff online with bitcoin i would, <laughs> I would highly recommend against it because uh, it's really not yeah. protection, as you may think
0: but let's talk about on the plus side and and this is where i really see the revolution coming in terms of the economy um and um you know what do you see i mean the, the economic benefits of blockchain technology or, or they call it distributed ledger technology um, is just huge. And I know you did a blog article on uh, the economic report from Congress, which uh, we've gotten a lot of feedback from because they there they cited uh, part of their sort of projection of the economy and growth. They cited this technology itself as a key driver uh, over the next few years. So I mean, what do you what do you see as this potential, Matt, uh, in terms of and the positive upside for businesses and legitimate, you know, uses of this incredible technology?
1: Yeah, um I you know, I think the sky's a limit here. Um, you know, I do just kinda want to address it, because it was cited and surprisingly well researched. Um, you know, I don't really mean to Insult Congress by saying that you know, well, research would be surprising, but you know, just to be quite right, honest, right, right, you, you know, right. this cryptocurrency technology is still very new, and unfortunately, sometimes you know, they're not always up to date on technology. But um, so, so, I would encourage people to take a look at it. Um, the chapter around cryptocurrency isn't very that you know isn't very long, so it's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty easy read. Um, it, like I said, it really does touch on a lot of use cases for it, um, but. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, the possibilities are still wide open at this point. Um, You know, blockchain has tremendous potential, you know, whether to enhance economic efficiency, uh, mitigate centralized systemic risk, uh, minimize fraudulent activity, and overall improve data quality and governance. You know, when linked to cryptocurrencies, blockchain can serve as this new store of value or records, enable asset transfers, and power new applications. Um, these new smart contracts can value themselves in real the time. they can report themselves as data repositories, automatically calculate before margin paid payments in the event of default and just you know in at this point an unknown amount, you know amount of things um, right we did we did find one study that estimated that blockchain um, could save as much as twenty billion dollars in infrastructure and operational costs each year. Uh, we found another study estimated that blockchain could cut trading settlement costs by a third or almost $16 billion per year. (laughs) Um, So, you know, the technology could have major impacts on a variety of industries, almost every industry, you know, whether from banking, to the supply chain, to data transfer and more. I mean, we're still only in the early stages. And, you know, to me, it's really exciting to see where this could go.
0: You know, if you can outline some of the services that we offer to people in the industry, obviously we've, we've done a lot of regulatory and, Uh, enforcement defense work uh, in, in uh, this area and other areas as well. So what do you, what are we offering? And, and, uh, you know, if you can sort of outline some of the things that we do, that'd be great.
1: Yeah. We, we offer a variety of things, Uh, you know, I mean, if it wasn't clear through, uh, you know, this podcast so far, like one, we are actually pretty passionate about it. Uh, We're excited to see where this can go. So, you know, it really helps, really helps there in our work, um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, it's just kind of a natural extension of what we've been doing over the last couple of years, you know. So, we are available to help companies and individuals who may want to participate in these markets either through an initial coin offering or the ICOs um, operating exchange, providing various related companies that operate in the area. You know, like I said before, I think the most important aspect here is to be proactive and get out ahead of the regulator. Uh, we just saw, it was reported the other day, that the U.S.'s largest crypto exchange, Coinbase, has approached the SEC to work with them to ensure that they're going to be completely compliant as they grow and add more coin offerings. And this is really the best course of action. You know, these regulators are not your enemy. Uh, you know, as we kind of try to explain here, they do want to help. Uh, but they also do want to crack down on the bad stuff. You know, so, you know, again, like, this is the best course of action as there's no doubt that regulations are coming in the near future. And what exactly they entail is still unknown, but based on what we know, whether in the financial sector or related industries, you know, we're able to help develop this best practice framework of control that should at least meet or exceed any future regulation. You know, and even at worst, you'll have... Places. You know, without squeezing through the nuances at that point. So, just as a sample, we provide uh, various due diligence services for parties. Um, we've seen a fair amount of growth in that area given the anti money laundering compliance requirements. Uh, we can help walk through the registration requirements at both state and federal levels. We're well versed in setting up compliance controls. That's really our bread and butter uh, to comply with. Uh, a variety of regulatory frameworks and you know we can even serve as legal advisors as projects unfold to help ensure that these projects don't overstep any legal Uh um, yeah you know we're pretty flexible in this space essentially
0: okay matt well listen this has really been great uh before we close out here uh if somebody does want to reach you to talk about uh, services or to talk about the industry in general, how would they, uh, how would they reach you?
1: Um, I really do love talking about this, data. it. Um, so if you would like to reach me, email is the best bet. Uh, my email is msankiewicz at How Let me spell that out for you because I you know it's a little tricky. It's m. s. t. a. n. k. i. e. w. i. c. z. at VolkoffLaw.com.
0: Fantastic. Thanks again, Matt. We really appreciate your time and uh, we definitely share your passion here uh, for the industry and see a lot of great possibilities. Um, And we look to, we'll try to have you back to sort of update us on where the industry is and what's going on down the road. But thanks. uh, We appreciate your time. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.bolthofflaw.com, or our award-winning blog, Corruption, Finance, and science, and our new podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mbolthoff, at bolthofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals.